and welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where we give you tangible, actionable tips to lead your most vibrant life. Now, today, we have a really special guest. We have my sister-in-law, Tara Scott. Now, I've known Tara for quite some time now. We're going on like eight, nine, ten years, something like that. Uh, Time flies. And the reason I wanted to have her on the podcast in particular is she's undergone a real personal journey in the past few years. So we talk about that in detail in the podcast about how she actually came to discover her bisexuality. One of the things that I've also been really impressed at over the past six years since they've had their first child, I have two beautiful little nieces, is that Tara and my brother have very specific views of parenting and things that they're trying to achieve. Stuff that I don't actually see as a regular, as a regular sort of parenting tool amongst my friends. You know, I think of, you know, the regular, you know, got to get them to eat their food, got to get them to, you know, be polite, got to get them to do this. Like, that's what I'm all, you know, caught up with in parenting. And yet Tara and my brother have very specific pillars and values that they're trying to instill in their girls that I, that I do see demonstrated on a regular basis. So I, I really wanted to talk about that. Tara is also a book reviewer with the Lesbian Reviews, and so she also podcasts about her favorite reviews, so we talk about how she got involved with that. And finally, we talk about Tara's professional life, which is as a marketing manager, and I I wanted to know in particular, because she considers herself an introverted person, I wanted to find out her opinion as to whether introverts can actually make good managers. I think they can, obviously, but what are the skill sets that an introvert can bring to the table as a manager instead of an extrovert? So it was definitely a really interesting interview, and it ties in really well with our sponsor. So the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. One of the things that ATB has been a huge supporter of for many, many years is the Pride Parade in both Calgary and Edmonton. Given that so much of this episode we talk about Tara's journey to discover her bisexuality, I just thought it was a really good tie-in. It's something that ATB supports. They also are a big supporter of Camp Firefly, which is a summer camp for LGBTQ youth. So again, we're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is a collection of podcasts made, produced by Albertans. Now, we cover all kinds of topics. You will find everything from movies, arts and culture, business and marketing, soccer, you name it. So given that Tara is a marketing manager and we talk a little bit about marketing in this, I did want to link to A Branded World by Louisa Campos. Now, Louisa and I actually worked together once upon a time, so I can tell you she is fantastic at marketing. So not only is she bringing her skills to the table, but she also interviews subject matter experts in marketing from across the country. So I think you will adore her podcast if you are interested in marketing or branding. So without further ado, let's head to the episode. Thanks, Tara, for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome. So for all those that don't know, Tara's my sister-in-law. It's true. For a long time. For a long time. <laughs> so it's like, how many years have you guys been married now? It's our 10th anniversary this year. So it's like 11 years I've yeah. known you? Yeah. Yeah. Big life changes for both of us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just yes. a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. So you went to university for an English degree and then did a master's yes. in English. I had two super valuable English degrees. <laughs> well, so what did you, like, when you were doing your master's, what were you, what was the big life plan? What did you think you were going to be doing? What I was did you hope a, for? I was going to be a professor. Oh, that cool. that was the plan. I didn't know what area of focus I was going to be in. So I always loved reading. I taught myself how to read when I was four. And 
it was just kind of always a thing. And so when I was in high school, I was reading like 300 books a year. I would actually write them down so I could keep track of them. And I had a wonderful English teacher named Mrs. McKinnon, who I took as many classes with her as I could. So four, actually, I managed to take with her. And she noticed and she was like, what are you going to do with your life? And I was like, I'm going to go be an early childhood educator. And she was like, no, (laughs) she was horrified because like, I genuinely loved literature so much. And she was like constantly putting books in my hands, not just for classes but like she would loan me her own books so she was loaning me like Michael and Dodge's books and um or she would say she was the one who said you need to read Jane Eyre and then I think I went on to read it like 20 times in high school and so she arranged for our class when I was in so you were reading those books like Michael and Dodge in high school yeah cool Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so in high school I was reading a blend of like Canadian literary fiction Victorian classics and um, just romance novels because my best friend's mom at the time used to work at Sears and so she would get all the ones that they couldn't sell where the covers were ripped off so we were just like pounding through harlequins and bodice rippers and all this all the time and then of course when I started my literary degree I could not read romance that's so silly anyway so so Mrs. The self shame. I know like. the shame, but like so judgy, so unnecessarily judgy because yeah. romance is wonderful. But yeah. so this teacher took our class to the university to sit in on a couple of classes, and she actually made sure to time it so that they were talking about a play that we had already just finished studying. And I was like, oh my god, I have to go. I want to go. This is what I want to do. And so it was a real passion, and I loved doing my undergraduate degree. And it was like, well, of course I'm going to become a professor. And I didn't know what area I wanted to specialize in. It was going to be either Canadian contemporary fiction or um, non-Shakespearean Renaissance drama. So like completely similar, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, not not similar. But when I went to do my master's, I hated it. Really? I really, really hated it. But I also felt like I didn't know what else I could do. And so I was going to continue to do a PhD anyway, because this was the path that I sort of felt like I had decided I was going to do. And one of the professors that I asked to write me a letter of reference for PhD application said no. She was very kind about it. And I was, you know, pretty heartbroken about it at the time. And it was the best thing that she could have done for me. And it was the right thing. She was 100% right. That track would not have made me happy. It would not have been a good fit. Yeah. Even leaving aside the fact that um, until the last year, public speaking gave me panic attacks. Yeah. (laughs) So why would I want to be a professor? But yeah, it really, like, it forced me to totally change paths. I moved back to the town where I grew up. I got a job around there. But I mourned for a while because it felt like I had dropped out of school. Yeah. Which I understand in hindsight is silly. I got a master's degree. That's not something that a lot of people do. I mean, I guess a lot of people do it. But like the majority of the people in the world do not have a master's degree. I by no means failed anything. But I felt like I had failed myself. But after getting into the workforce, I realized, oh, no, I'm much better suited here. Yeah. So. So then you switched into sort of doing writing for marketing yeah yeah eventually so my first gig out of school was at a digital agency that did 
e-learning sites for uh, one of the big automakers just to help like salespeople learn about the new models or whatever. And I was a proofreader. Yeah. And so because of that job, I'm still a really good proofreader to this day because you have to be intensely (laughs) (laughs) intensely detail oriented. And then from there, I had a friend who moved back to Calgary and said, hey, I have to build a user experience team. So she had to move back to Calgary and she was building a, a a user experience team at this online payments company. And she said, I need a writer. And I said, I've never done that before. And she said, I know you can do this. So I did. And then within a year, I moved into marketing. And that was kind of the, the, the force for the rest of my career. It broke my parents' hearts when I moved. But they got over it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> but it was, it was for the best. Because if I hadn't have moved, that was the real... Like, I would say that professor telling me not to keep going and then moving to Calgary were the real kind of catalysts for the whole rest of my life and my journey and where I've ended up. Because if I hadn't moved to Calgary, I, you know, wouldn't have met Neil and wouldn't have my family yeah, and wouldn't have ended up in the career that I'm in now. Yeah. Isn't it so... Fa- I always think it's fascinating. I like to ask people what they planned to be because mm-hmm. I think... When we're younger, whether it's high school, university, or whatever, we have these very clear visions of what we think we want. Yeah. And then either something doesn't work out or you find out you don't actually want what you want. And it's just interesting how, like, on paper, some people might see certain things as, well, you didn't get that, so you didn't achieve whatever. And I'm like, no, but I got this instead. And this was way better. Like, it's, I just think it's fascinating how that works out a lot of the times. Absolutely. So when I was five, I wanted to work in a VCR store. So (laughs) unfortunately, that dream never came to life and it never will. But when I was in high school, the dream job, not the job that I thought that was achievable, but my dream job was to be a fiction editor because I loved reading so much. And the funny thing is, I actually have been able to do some of that. I've learned since that I would never want to do that full time. But there mm-hmm. is a popular romance author out of the States who is mainly self-published at this point. But I edit her books. We do That's two awesome. to three a year. So I achieved one of my dream jobs. Yeah. Only to realize I don't want that to be a full-time job. Yeah. Um, and then, thank goodness, the other one didn't work out because seeing my friends that went on to pursue PhDs, not all of them were able to get those teaching jobs. Yeah. Well, there's only so many, right? I know. Like I know. And there are so many tenure track positions that are being eliminated as professors retire. Yeah. Like it's just a rough market and I'm so glad I didn't have to compete in it. Yeah. Which this is just a tangent, but it often makes me wonder what the onus is on if there is an onus on universities or colleges for the number of people they'll let take a program when there aren't going to be that many jobs. Well, like I get that schools are a business. Yeah, absolutely. I actually don't think people should pursue a degree with the intention of a specific job at the end of it. Okay. That's my own personal philosophy. Having actually gone through that, I, while I didn't enjoy my master's degree, I absolutely adored my undergraduate degree. Yeah. I went to the University of Windsor for that. And that was, I don't know, like 15. Oh, I, guess, <laughs> I started it almost 20 years ago. Yeah. 
<laughs> Barf. <laughs> okay. So, but it was a wonderful experience. They had an incredible group of professors, which isn't to say that Queens didn't have a great group of professors yeah. for master's programs. It's just like the intensity at which you're expected to work on a master's degree for, in literature is ridiculous. And the reason I loved studying literature was actually being able to immerse myself in these books yeah and so I would choose the courses I wanted to take based on what I felt like reading at the time yeah which meant of course I had to do Chaucer in my last year because it was like well I guess I gotta hit that yeah. uh, requirement but for business students, that's <laughs> accounting courses you're like uh <laughs> god totally but it's it's not like I directly use my degrees in the work that I do at my day job I'm not critically looking at literature in my day-to-day job although I do in all of my passion project type stuff but there are a lot of things that I pulled from that degree and the skills that I learned in that degree that are highly transferable to what I do in my work now so I think it's best given that there is no guarantee there's no guarantee you're going to get the job you want um so given that, you should pursue your passion mm-hmm. and then be willing to kind of take that, like, apply around, yeah. see where you can get in, take that job, move up in the company into something you're more interested in over time. Yeah. And then you can maybe go off into yeah. whatever that ideal career was. I think that's solid advice because, like, yeah, transferable skills are the key. And, yeah, you never know if you're even going to like it when you're on the other side. So at least have some skills to fall back on. I know. Oh, my goodness. My dad was horrified at the time because very few people in our extended family had even gone to college or university. One of my aunts on his side and maybe one or two of my cousins. And I have like, I don't know, 20 cousins. And he couldn't understand why would you want to do this if there's not going to be a job. He could at least understand if I wanted to be a teacher, but I didn't really want to be, I didn't want to be like a high school or grade school teacher. And I just said, I love it. Yeah. I love it and I have to do it. But now, in hindsight, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, we're so many years past. No, I didn't get a d- directly related job, but I got, a, I got a very good job. Yeah. And I ended up in a very good career. Yeah. Well, and if nothing else, that that city, town, should know that nothing's guaranteed, right? All the auto jobs disappeared when that was what ran Windsor for oh, so long. Yeah. I know. It's um, it's awful. They There was that huge recession in the 1990s and Windsor never fully recovered yeah and so I find that when I go back to visit it's like I'm going to a different country their economic reality is so different from my economic reality so it's just yeah it worked out yeah fair enough so I want to talk to you a little bit about the we were talking about fiction you edit fiction but you also review fiction I do how did so tell our listeners what you review and how that came about So I review about 100 books a year or a little more. I do that at a few different places. And it's mainly it's mainly lesbian fiction or fiction that features women who love other women because there are, you know, there are bisexual women in there. It's not all like strictly just lesbians. I started reading it. uh, I was pregnant with my oldest daughter and I started reading romance again. Mm hmm. 
finally having shed the stigma and the snobbery of university about romance. And pregnancy is so brutal, you just want to enjoy the process whenever way you can. It's so true. Well, and not only that, but my workplace at that point had gotten so toxic. I was just trying to make it to a mat leave. And so romance was this perfect escape. And I came across a list on Jezebel that was like the 10 lesbian romances on my Kindle at the time. And I turned to my desk mate and I was like, oh my God did you know lesbian romances are a thing? And she was like, what? And I was like, no, books, like the books. Do you know that there's, yes, obviously we know women can love other women, but like the genre, did you know this is a thing? She was like, no. And so I read a few of them Yeah. and they were awesome. It was like a revelation. And it went to where I was, uh, I just stopped reading. um, Heterosexual. Yeah, Yeah. like opposite pairing romances for the most part. And was just reading that and I started while I was on I think it was while I was on mat leave I started proofreading for one of the company's bold strokes books because their deal was that if you proofread one book a month for them you would get all their books that month which was pretty sweet so it was like we were on a budget yeah (laughs) it's a nice way to get a lot of books I liked a lot of their books I reached out to a reviewer that I followed on Twitter though and I was like hey you should review this book and she looked at my Twitter profile and saw that I had marketer as mm-hmm. one of the the words in my bio and said, you should do it. And I did. And she liked my review. So then I just kept reviewing books with her. So that's at the lesbian review where I do the bulk of my reviewing. I reviewed for about a year and a half at Curve Magazine, which yep. is the largest lesbian magazine going. I recently stopped there because they put a paywall up on their site and... You know, I just don't think that's super cool. Yeah. But I also review at Lambda Literary and I submit a handful of guest reviews a year at Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question. So So, lesbian reviews, did you find in reading them that that sort of opened you up to realizing to any observations on your own sexuality? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes and no. I didn't come to it on my own. What happened was my husband said, hey, you're reading a lot of lesbian romances. Do you think you might maybe be bi? Because that's okay and you're not going to go to hell. And that was so important for me. I was raised in an evangelical home, a deeply religious home, and it wasn't it didn't even feel like it was an option and it was almost like was it not even talked about or was it talked about negatively it i'm trying to think of how to put this because it's not like it was just my parents like we were deeply immersed in our local church my dad was a deacon for a lot of it my mom was in the kitchen committee and the you know she was in the nursery like i was and she was on the ladies committee and i was in all kinds of like bible studies mm-hmm. and youth group and all this sort of stuff and so it like it's not like i'm saying my parents said you can't do this because they didn't we never talked about it yeah but the community that i was deeply immersed in it was very clear that this wasn't acceptable mm-hmm. And I was attracted to enough boys that I was able to say, oh, it's fine. I'm normal. There's, this is not a big deal. But there was still very much that like, oh, well, like gay people can't get married. That's not real marriage. And, you know, they're going to go to hell because mm-hmm. the Bible says so and all that. So when Neil said that to me, 
it was like it just broke open this box that had been left yeah in the back of the closet (laughs) yeah let's let's call it what it is and it was really difficult at first because I really only had him to talk to about it I didn't have any other I didn't have many other queer friends I should say Um, I did have a couple of friends from back in university that I was able to reach out to Mm -hmm. one well actually they're both they're both lesbians but that was that was kind of it. So the kind of wonderful thing that happened with starting to review at the Lesbian Review is that I didn't have to just do this all by myself anymore. So that was how I found a community online yeah. and friends who were able to say, this is great. And just kind of that acceptance and that kind of ability to really unpack things in my head with friends that I could talk to about it. And Neil was amazing. Like every step of the way, he was amazing. He was a hundred percent supportive. He, and, and continues to be like, he takes care of the kids all the time because he's the primary caregiver, Mm -hmm. but specifically on the weekends, he gives me time to work on my reviews and he gives me time to, I have my own podcast. He gives me time to record that and to edit that and really kind of pursue my passions. Mm -hmm. And, it didn't, it changed nothing and it changed everything about our marriage all at once. Because on a practical level, nothing has changed. Yeah. We are happily married. We are monogamous. So that day-to-day reality didn't change. What did change was that more of my authentic self that I didn't even know existed came into our marriage and came into my relationships with the people in my life. It was something that I can recognize looking back. It's like, oh, I was compartmentalizing all along. Mm-hmm. And it's quite sad. And I kind of feel sad for who I was growing up when I realized, oh, most of my attractions were actually to girls or women. But I also, I can't regret anything because I might not have ended up with my family. Yeah. And I love my family. Yeah. So, you know, fiction did that for me. And continues to do that for me I still have that community online it's a great group of women that I'm reviewing with at the lesbian review um, some of whom have become some of my closest friends so just reaching out to somebody and saying you should review that book yeah that was another one of those like absolutely pivotal moments because at that point I knew I was bisexual but I felt very isolated yeah and I don't feel isolated anymore yeah it's funny how tiny seemingly innocuous decisions can completely alter your life it's huge yeah yeah and I'm just gonna give kudos to Neil here because we grew up in a very traditional home and I'm not saying like we were never encouraged to like do whatever we want but like he's awesome yeah he's so awesome I don't know I don't think there are many other men I could be with but he is I think I think the soulmates thing is cheesy so I don't want to say it's that but like we are just very well suited because we have very similar values we're committed to raising our girls the same way yeah Yeah. so on how you want to raise your girls Mm -hmm. how has your view of parenting been shaped like what are the core values that you're I mean because we all make mistakes Mm -hmm. and we're all gonna make mistakes continue Mm -hmm. but like what are the things you're trying more than anything else to achieve so one of the key moments for how I view parenting actually came shortly after 
our oldest went into day home. Mm-hmm. That day home was a little wild. <laughs> it was a little bit um, like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> That's not fair to say. I'm sorry, Jenny, if you listen to this. She was great. She was great. Um, it was it was perfect for my daughter. And something that that day home provider said was because her kids were a little bit older and she said that her view as a parent is that she needs to get out of her kid's way, which I thought was amazing because yes, we need to help guide our kids to, you know, act in ways that are acceptable and make sense. But at the same time, we can't, they are who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to do as parents is help them be who they are in a way that's going to work as they navigate the world. So, like, my oldest is very passionate. She is the happiest person in the world when she's happy. And she's the maddest when she's <laughs> mad. And she's just a really spirited child. And she tries to negotiate. And I love that. I want her to learn how to negotiate. So, that's why I don't actually think it works to be the parent that always says no to everything yeah. all the time because negotiation is an important skill to yeah. learn. And how else are they going to learn it if we don't give them opportunities to try? She's not always going to win. And then, you know, my little one is she's quite like a happy and sunny and pleasant kid. And she's so stubborn. She's so stubborn and she's me. And so <laughs> she like, she's so me. Like the oldest one is Neil a hundred percent and the youngest one is me. And so we're fighting with ourselves sometimes, yeah. but in a way it almost gives us that view into, Oh my God, that was us when we were little. Yeah. Who do we want to help them be able to be? Yeah. Like where did I think both sets of parents did their absolute best. Yeah. And I'm by no means faulting my parents or your parents. Yeah. With the good fortune of having hindsight and seeing how we were raised and what the effects were, what do we want to keep and what do we want to do differently? And so I want my kids to think critically and to challenge the status quo if it needs challenging or to challenge things that they're told that doesn't make sense. I was not raised to challenge things because I was raised in the church where you're very much taught to accept things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that was okay, but that was not always okay. I also, like a huge core of how we're parenting them is for them to prize consent. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that when they get to sex ed in school, there will be no surprises. They use the real words for their bodies. Mm-hmm. They, you know, if their vulva is itchy, they will say, my vulva is itchy, which is uncomfortable for some other adults who are not used to hearing small children talk about their vulva. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it's kind of a two-pronged thing we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that when it's time for them to have sex, they're going to do it on their terms. They're going to do it because they're ready. They're going to do it because they understand that it's not just about being physically ready. It's about being emotionally ready. And that, you know, sex is not just 
for procreation in marriage, which feels silly to say. But again, like I said, I was raised in that deeply religious environment where it was like, no sex before marriage. And when you have that. Oh, I remember the jokes at your wedding. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, (laughs) the effects of that and being taught, you know, like when we would have, when we would have youth group at somebody's house one night, like an activity to go swimming at someone's house, the girls had to wear bathing um, t-shirts over their bathing suits. Because we couldn't cause the boys to sin. Yeah. And that gave me a very negative view of my body. So when there's this constant, you can't, you can't think about it. You definitely don't do it. Don't think about it. Don't make anybody else think about it. But it's going to be wonderful when you get married. And that's not how it works. And it's this huge elephant in the room if it's like, don't think about it. Don't, nope, Mm -hmm. nope like mm-hmm. and there is no it's it's all just just wait until after you're married and there's no there's no talk about consent there's no talk about pleasure and that and how it is okay to go after your own pleasure so when you're mm-hmm. relying on media what you're getting is the view of like books and movies and whatever and especially like reading romances coming up in the 90s, it wasn't about her pleasure. Mm-hmm. The woman would often end up marrying her rapist in like historical romances. Mm-hmm. Like it was messed up. So I came into marriage with a deeply negative view of sex and my body. And it was complicated and it was uncomfortable mm-hmm. physically as well as un- emotionally, unfortunately, because I didn't know what I was doing. And I don't want that for my kids. Mm-hmm. I want them to understand that their bodies are beautiful no matter what they're like yeah and that their bodies are their own and that they decide what happens to their bodies and that even if something happens that wasn't their choice it's not their fault is the other thing there will be none of this what were you wearing or what were you drinking or what were you like whatever happens to them they're okay Mm-hmm. And it's not their fault. And so that's why even as, like right now, the oldest one, you will hear her say quite liberally, I am the boss of my body. You can't tell me what to do because that is something we've been talking to her about for three years now. She's yeah. turning seven. And you're going to start hearing the little one say it soon too. We're saying it to her. She's not saying it back yet, but she will. Because you can't start teaching people about consent when they're adults. It needs to begin in childhood. And that means that they don't have to hug anyone they don't want to. They don't have to high five anyone they don't want to. And even like when the oldest will come and say, that kid doesn't want to play, won't play with me. And I'll say, not everyone has to play with you. And you don't have to play with everyone. And that's okay. And so it's like really using those building blocks. And she knows how babies are made in an age appropriate way. So we're going to build on that as she grows so that hopefully as an adult she's not going to have all of those same hang-ups that I had she's going to have her own hang-ups yeah and we're not going to be able to anticipate and block all of them but I think that's a really important one because I don't know well it occurs to me that like that was a really pivotal year for you all around because you're talking about like teaching your kids to be their authentic self at a time when you're discovering your authentic self. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like it was a mm-hmm. very, a, a year of growth. Absolutely. And I mean, I feel like I'm still figuring out that authentic self even now, like even in the last year I went from like, I, 
I, I went from presenting as more typically feminine to, you know, I cut all my hair off and, and it looks great. Thank you. Like everyone's <laughs> saying that it's true. Yeah, I had a couple of coworkers say that I looked, that I looked like a badass. And I was like, what? Uh, because nobody had ever said that to me before. And, you know, I started dressing in a more masculine style, but I still like wearing makeup and I yeah. still like, you know, I like wearing, I started wearing nail polish when I didn't before, but like really kind of cool nail polish. I like, I found that I really like playing with gender. And so while I still identify as a woman, I feel like, you know, gender queer feels yeah. like a really good label because it is that like, I don't feel a hundred percent feminine, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like a man either. So, you know, even just figuring that out. Yeah felt like unlocking another box that I didn't know was there but yeah. kind of makes sense when I, when I look back because you know my mom would put me in these pink and frilly things and then when I was about eight I was like nope <laughs> nope no more of that and like yeah I wore a lot of flannel in high school which kind of and now now I wear it because I'm queer but, <laughs> but at the time it was the 90s so it yeah. was like I was listening Grunge. to Pearl Jam yeah. and Nirvana like yeah. it was perfect so you seem more confident than ever. I'm so much more confident. And it was kind of cool. I was actually able to come out to my parents as genderqueer a couple of weeks ago. And it went really well. And um, and they both kind of went, oh. I had to explain to them what it meant. Yeah. And it wasn't like I was like, guys, there's something you need to know. It was just yeah. like it came up naturally in conversation. And it was really cool because they just kind of got it when they looked back, they were like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. You've never been particularly feminine. I was like, yeah, like I felt like before I had clothes and I had hair, but I didn't have a style and I didn't hate the way I looked. I didn't think I wasn't an attractive person, but I didn't have a lot of confidence and I, and I wasn't particularly invested in that. Whereas now I feel like I look cool. Like I actually, like I feel really, really good about myself. Yeah in a way that I didn't before and it's yeah. all tied and I did have some anxiety about it at first apart from my typical anxiety that I have all the time <laughs> but it was kind of one of those because I also look like I look super gay like I just do I had my boss one day as a total compliment and she's like I hope you know this is a compliment she's like you look like a lesbian hamster and I started to laugh I was like I do look you like do a lesbian look like hamster a lesbian. yeah um and I take that as a compliment I love how you say I wear flannel because I'm gay kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah well but I wondered it was one of those I mean I probably spend too much time in my head sometimes as many of us do and I was like well do am I allowed to look like a lesbian when I'm married to a man and that was tough because it was one of those, well, it's not like I'm straight because I'm definitely not. Yeah. But am I allowed to do this? And so I think the the really huge thing for me in the last six months was realizing, oh, my gender presentation is totally different from my sexual orientation. Yeah. The two are not the same. They might be related because they both kind of fall under that general queer umbrella. Yeah. But... The way I feel happy when I look is not necessarily part of the same box in my brain as the people that I'm attracted to. Yeah. And that was huge. And that was so helpful. Yeah. It's f- I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's such a challenging journey to go on. So good for mm-hmm. you for like asking yourself hard questions mm-hmm. and figuring it out. And I mean, obviously, it's still an ongoing process. And I think those things must not those things for like anyone figuring out their authentic self is going to change as you go through different life 
milestones and experiences and like Mm-hmm. You know, becoming a parent is a total mindfuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, it is. It is. Um, but, I mean, luckily, I've had an amazing partner through all of it. And, I yeah. mean, I'll admit, I was nervous, too, like, cutting off all the hair. I was like, oh, is Neil going to like it? And I get that it's my hair, and I need to make sure that I'm happy. But, you know, you don't want you your, still but, you don't want your partner to not be attracted yeah. to you. Um, and it turns out he's actually more attracted now. Yeah probably partly because confidence is sexy yeah so that's also been great to see that not only am i happier being my authentic self it makes your marriage happier but it makes my marriage happier yeah yeah happy wife happy life (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know you're talking about you know your boss talking about how you look a certain way or Mm -hmm. things that you post online like i've I often wonder, and I like I have this debate with myself about how much do we put online mm-hmm. for fear of, yeah, and it is fear, right? Like yep. for fear of what will people think? Um, yeah. Like you're saying, well, you know, am I allowed to look a certain way yeah. when I'm married to a man? I'm sure part of that is also like, what will other people think? Mm-hmm. And with everything online living forever, mm-hmm. like, do you ever censor what you share? Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, not necessarily because of workplace stuff. I... I share my story pretty openly. Yeah. I don't, I like only tiny bits of it end up in my reviews, but I mean, they're book reviews. It doesn't make sense. I have been very open about it on my podcast though. My podcast is called Let's Do Books and it's on the Lesbian Talk Show channel. And it's actually not about me talking about, it's not meant to be about me talking about my story. It's talking to authors about books that they love and their journey as, as readers and how they discover lesbian fiction and that kind of thing. But you know, in sharing, often my story comes out as well. And when Sheena did last year, she did a really popular podcast on the channel called Ask a Butch, which was about like talking to butch butch women to dig into kind of the stigmas that are there and try to demystify the butch experience. Well, she wanted to do a similar one called Ask a Bisexual. And so I came on to do that as well. And I talked quite openly about about my story I don't know when this episode is going up if the if they'll all be done or not but it's in progress kind of right we now we will link to it recording yeah. sure and so a lot of what I've shared here is in that podcast yeah. and, and then some because we are talking about kind of the stigmas around like bisexual women being promiscuous yeah. and not being able to choose and kind of all that sort of stuff and so I'm pretty open about a lot of parts of my story, but there are some things that are mine that I don't share. I don't share our daughter's names. Yeah. I don't feel like that's right. Mm -hmm. I don't share any of Neil's struggles, Mm -hmm. like his stuff that he goes through. I don't think that's my story to tell. Yeah. We have had other difficulties that have come up in our marriage that you know about but I'm not going to bring up because I'm actually saying the things that I don't share yeah so this is not the time to share that either yeah but otherwise I tend to be pretty open because I I don't think anybody if if you if you put it out there and it's not a secret nobody can really hurt you with it yeah now when it comes to having this very like I recognize that I am an influencer in the lesbian fiction space. And I don't say that as an, ooh, I'm an, an influencer. It's like, no, I, I get that. When I put out a positive review, people will buy books. Yeah. Um, and there are people who 
align with me because I put enough of my personality into my reviews that, you know, they will, they will buy every book that I reviewed. Yeah. When I reached out to Sheena, I didn't realize that the lesbian review would be such a big deal. Yeah. Because it is. Yeah. It's probably not. I mean, I'm all, I'm almost a hundred percent sure it's the most influential site in the sector. Yeah. And I had no idea it was going to be such a thing. Yeah. And if I did know, I I might have done, a, I might have chosen a pseudonym. Because that is something that I've thought about. It's like, oh, should I have done that? Yeah. Maybe. But then I thought about it. And it's like, do I really want to work at any company that isn't going to want to hire me for your whole self? For my whole self. Exactly. Like, do I want to work at companies where I would have to be closeted? And I recognize it would be very, if I grew my hair back out, it would be very easy for me to pass. I mean, I thought I was straight for years. It's not like I was lying. Like I genuinely believed it. And I am married to a man. So it would be very, very easy for me to have that straight, the straight passing privilege. And instead what I've chosen to do is say, nope, nope. Here I am. Here's my queer flag. I'm going to fly it around. Everybody needs to know because it doesn't feel good to do that. If I were to do that, I would not be in a psychologically safe place. I would be making myself unsafe. So there might be consequences later on in my career, but there aren't any now. Yeah. Anyone that I've told at work about the reviewing and the podcasting thinks it's pretty cool. Um, My company is awesome and like very... Um, positively supportive of our uh, of our gay community there you know marched in pride last year will yeah. is I believe planning to march in pride this year so I'm fortunate that I work for a company whose values align with mine yeah and I hope I can continue to do that long into the future that's awesome do you feel like you're learning things I yeah absolutely <laughs> Um, I have a really quick question. That's yeah, totally yeah, yeah. like yeah. I know we've been talking about big topics. No, no. Reviews are they full of spoilers? No. Okay. No, I because this is why I worry about reading reviews. Uh no, my <laughs> reviews are very safe. I deliberately do not include spoilers. The way. So the way they're set up at the lesbian review is actually different than anywhere else I've reviewed. Yeah. Because anywhere else I've reviewed, it's really just, it's a long form review. It's yeah. all one piece. It's all kind of, that, that's just yeah. what it is. It's, there you go. You have your little synopsis. You have your yeah. little interpretation. Bang. Go buy it. The way Sheena set it up, I think, is kind of brilliant because people can skim to the parts that are most interesting to them. So you have your synopsis and then we have sections for the characters where we talk about the characters yeah. and then the writing style where we can get into that. Okay. So if you're a character person, you can skip right to the characters. If you're a writing style person, you can skip right there. It also has pros and cons. So again, if that's all you care about, what are the pros and cons of this book? I occasionally include minor spoilers in the cons. And when I do, I always give a warning. Okay. Just so that if people want to skip ahead, they can. But if there is a sexual assault... I'm going to mention that because people need to know about that. If there is something about the story that really bothers me enough that it's a con, I will include it there, but try to include as little detail as possible. Enough so that people can understand why that thing bothered me, but not so much as to like give away the whole thing. Yeah. No, I don't think that's right. I mean, this is why I challenge like Goodreads. I'm like, "Mm, can't do it. So many people include spoilers. Goodreads, obviously massively different to what you do, but I... What I find most useful about Goodreads is the aggregate 
ranking. Ranking. Thank you. That's the right word. Yeah. So I find that very valuable because most of the time I agree with whatever it is. If it says it's a three and a half star, I'll go read the book and be like, yeah, that was, that was pretty much, it's not the best, but it's not the worst. But otherwise, I know it's like the wild west on there. I love and hate Goodreads. I tell authors to stay off of Goodreads actually, because you cannot respond to reviews on Goodreads. Don't do it. Stay away. Don't do it. But I think I also come at reviewing a little bit differently than a lot of other people because I'm a marketer. And so I really try to look at it as I, I like when authors respond to my reviews. I'll admit I, I, I think it's great to know that they think it's going to be helpful for them yeah. because I believe that I'm creating a marketing piece for them. My reviews are for readers primarily, yeah. but I do want to make sure it's going to be useful to the reader and to the, I mean, to the author and to the publisher. But what I want to make sure is that when somebody reads one of my reviews, they can walk away from it with enough information to either know that they should buy this book or they should not buy this book. So spoilers isn't going to help with that. Yeah. Before we get into the five questions I ask all my my audience, I want to ask you a bit about... your job so you've been I mean we talked about the writing piece and the marketing piece Mm -hmm. but you've been a manager at various different places that you've worked so first off do you consider yourself an introvert oh 100% okay I've done I've I've done a couple tests yes I I am deep introvert so traditionally I would think people would think that managers should be more extroverted people some people many of the places I've worked at they've kind Mm -hmm. of considered you know you have to be a there's this false belief that um, to be a people person, you have to be an extrovert. I think introverts are very well suited to being people, mm. pe- people, people, because they are empathetic and, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. That said, as a manager who is also an introvert, what do you think are the challenges and what are the benefits? So I would, I'm going to step back a little bit from that to your point about being people, people, I don't identify just as an introvert, although I'm definitely absolutely hundred percent yeah. an introvert. And so if I have a day where I'm around a crowd, I'm going to go home and I joke about being introvert exhausted. Yeah. There are days when I will come home from work and I don't have it in me to interact very much yeah. with Neil and the girls because I'm tapped out. I've been drained when the last kind of big and the best big access uh, assessment I did was um, last year or the year before at work, I went through leadership training and they had us go through and it was not just the introvert extrovert scale, Mm -hmm. but also against the people oriented and task oriented scale. And so I found that very interesting and I was deeply introverted and deeply people oriented. So yes, absolutely. You can, you can definitely be people oriented while being introverted. It's not that I, so it's not that I don't care about people because I probably, this is going to sound so cheesy, but like I do, I care too much sometimes about people and that can also be draining. But in terms of being a good manager, I actually think the most important thing is knowing yourself and knowing the people on your team and where they're at. And so how you can, from where you're at, best meet the people that you're leading. Mm-hmm. We can't expect them to 100% flex to us in our style. It actually is on us to flex to them as much as possible. I think you can still honor yourself by just saying, you know, laying it out there sometimes like, 
I'm sorry, I can't answer this right now. Like if somebody asks you a tough question and like as an introvert, I need time to think about it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to just like talk it out on the spot. And so it's being able to be honest and just say, I'm really sorry, I can't answer this right now. I need time to think about it and I I will get back to you. Yeah. But I think knowing that that you're not going to be good off the cuff, Mm -hmm. you also need to accommodate for that by being prepared. Mm-hmm. coming into difficult conversations prepared coming into good conversations prepared because you actually sometimes never know where a conversation is going to go mm-hmm. and depending on how introverted you are and how likely you are to be drained by certain things also knowing what your self-care practices are and just being ready so that when you get out of and this is true not just for managing but for kind of being an introvert in the workplace know yourself, know the situations where you're likely to be drained, and then just be prepared for Mm -hmm. when you're done to have a little bit of self-care. So for example, for me, one of the things that I do with my VP is every other week we do this interactive training session with, we're trying to run the whole company through this just to help everybody understand how to talk about what we do as a company, because it's quite complex. And it's really good for everybody to know (laughs) what the company is doing. Even if you are like in finance or you're one of the developers or whatever, we're all working towards a mission. So let's help everybody understand ambassadors for your company. Absolutely. So when your neighbor says, Hey, what do you do? Exactly. Like you need to be able to answer it. Yeah. So this is meant to help people know how to answer. Hey, what do we do? Yeah. But by the end of it, you know, it's a, it's a two, it's more than two hours. Yeah, it's a little over two hours, highly interactive, facilitating for anywhere between 20 and 30 people at a time. So for me, when I come out of that, I feel almost like I'm in a fog. So I go down the street. There is this wicked shawarma place down the street. I get a Donair and I get a can of Coke and I just like carb up and have the fats and the sugars. And that kind of has turned into my thing to do on those days. Because it gets me out of the office. It gets me away from people for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that's my comfort food. Yeah. Like that's just one of my ultimate comfort foods is a donair. So I indulge myself. That's yeah. the right time to indulge myself. Yeah. Sorry. So you're saying benefits are being. Oh, um, I don't know if they, I don't know if it's specifically like, I don't know if there are specific benefits in terms of it being like better or worse or anything yeah. like that. Like, I think it just kind of is. I think. I guess the benefit is that it's always good to have different perspectives, right? It's not good to only have one type of perspective in leadership. So when you can have more perspectives, it's going to be better. You're going to get to more interesting outcomes. And as long as it's somebody who can be self-aware and work with their team and meet them where they're at, it's going to go well. Yeah. I completely agree on the diversity of thought and personality experience, right? Mm because I've worked at places where managers end up being a bunch of for yeah. lack of a better term dude bros oh no yeah <laughs> like, well and like group think isn't good with any no. with any one group definitely not with dude bros <laughs> like, yeah yeah good times yeah so we're getting close to an hour so i do want to wrap up with the five questions i ask all my interviewees okay. uh what are the what are the things or the projects that get you fired up in a good way this could be professional personal hobby mm-hmm. politics whatever you're like no 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 so I always get fired up when I get to work with people I like yeah 
it's always going to be people. Like I said, I'm, I'm that people oriented introvert. Yeah. So I almost don't care what the project is. If I really like the people that yeah. I work with, if I can go in and feel like I'm doing good work with people that I care about, um, who can, you know, even sometimes become friends, that's always going to be the best. I mean, yeah. that's why, that's why I've been with a lesbian review for two and a half years now. Yeah. Like, I love those ladies. They are amazing. Yeah. They are my rocks. But we also get to do really good work together or yeah. projects at work. We're getting to do really good work there as well. But like I'm getting to do it with people that I enjoy and I respect. Yeah. That's awesome. This is going to be, I think, maybe challenging for you because you read so many damn books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the most, not the best book that you've read, but the most inspiring book that you've read? So thankfully you sent me these questions ahead of time because I don't know what I would have answered if you had asked me spontaneously, but I had to think about it and I only read fiction. Yeah. So I don't have a good, I'm guessing like nonfiction is great in terms of inspiring books. So I had to really think about it and I only read lesbian fiction these days. Yeah. So... But it could be inspiring in terms of like type, like writing style, how it makes you think differently. So I kept thinking about it and... um. Oh, can I have two? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to link to both of them, so go for it. If Sheena listens to this, she's going to be laughing because she's going to be like, of course she asked if she could yeah. have two. Because <laughs> like, I can never choose just one. So one of the best books that I read last year is called Rainbow Gap by Lee Lynch. Rainbow Gap? Yep. Okay. Lee Lynch is a highly influential lesbian author. Her book, The Swashbuckler, came out in the 1980s. And was just this, like, defining the butch experience. It's incredible. This book, though, takes place in the, mostly in the 1960s. It starts, like, a tiny bit in the 50s and kind of in the early 70s. And it's not a romance, but it's very much a love story. And it has these two women who, you know, became friends when they were quite young in the, like, in Florida in kind of like a, trailer park or something I'm trying to remember and they're very much soulmates you can see it from when they're children and when we see what they go through at this time when it's illegal to be gay and they're still finding their way anyway and one of them like it's a it's a butch femme relationship and it's very much like it's not easy for the butch woman to be butch like having that non-normative gender presentation But then we also see them as they join up with, like, the women's lib movement Mm -hmm. and, um, like, trying to tackle racism, what was going with that movement. And so I found that book incredibly inspiring because I feel like what Lee Lynch was telling us there was, we've been there before. We're going through the fights again um, because she would, I think she would have been writing this kind of when they were still fighting for marriage equality Mm -hmm. in the States, Um, which as we know, they got marriage equality, but it could get rolled back. Especially if the Supreme Court scary. swings the way it's going to. It's so scary. But the, the thing that inspires me about that book is like, we've we've been through these fights before. We have a tremendous strength and we can absolutely do this again. And yeah. we will. So that's my first pick. My second one is a book called Backcast by Anne McMahon. Anne McMahon is one of my favorite authors. I've fangirled over her way too much in my podcast. <laughs> um, I am I am a well-known Anne McMahon fangirl. She writes exquisite prose. Mm-hmm. 
the thing that she did in that book that's different from all of her other it's it's very different from all of her other books so yeah so backcast is even it's it's a little hard to describe but the idea is that there is an artist who gets a huge grant from the national endowment i don't know anyway it's some big it's some big like arts granting body in the states and we're canadian so why should i remember what it stands for and to do this project that marries art with with writing and so she gets together these 11 women to write essays they all go to vermont to this little lodge to do it and she is going to create these like big sculptures these big metal sculptures one for each of the um, one for each of the essays exactly each chapter starts with an essay oh cool so there's 12 chapters she ends up writing one of them herself so each chapter starts with the essay and we don't know who's written it and then the things that happen in the chapter itself is kind of what's going on in the present as they're you know at the lodge and as they're kind of going about and it's hilarious in parts like I was laughing out loud and almost crying I was laughing so hard yeah but it also deals with some intensely heavy material and so I've never seen anyone who can do it like she can where it's like you feel like you've been punched in the face yeah and then you're just like laughing 20 minutes later because it pulls the tension out of it and I was oh my god I wept at the ending yeah so I guess I just like I love the way that that book talks about like storytelling and how like going back to that like being your authentic self and how much of your story do you share and that kind of this book is is fabulous because it's you know we see things revealed in the essays yeah that they're not necessarily likely to reveal to each other in person and it really is that like we choose how much of our story we share and how much we keep to ourselves how much is ours and how much is for public consumption and i can't recommend that book enough i haven't read anything like it before since oh i want to check it out now do you have a favorite quote or words that you live by so this was actually the hardest one because (laughs) i am not a quote person yeah so typically speaking i would say no but there was something that I saw recently that really moved me and has been sticking with me for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people online are talking about the new Hannah Gadsby special, Nanette, mm-hmm. on Netflix. And it's it's fabulous. If anybody hasn't seen it, absolutely yeah. go ahead and watch it. It's because, on my list. I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, it's yeah. so good. And I, I mean, what I'm about to say is not a spoiler because it's right there in the trailer. Yeah. But she's been a stand-up comedian for more than 10 years in Australia. And so she starts off the first 20 minutes to a half an hour or so is her kind of doing comedy and it's great. And then she starts talking about how she she needs to quit comedy. Mm -hmm. And then she talks about how jokes are constructed and kind of the difference between jokes and storytelling. And the thing that I found really powerful is that she said that, you know, self-deprecation is at the heart of so many of her jokes. But the problem is that with self-deprecation, it's not humility, it's humiliation. Mm Mm-hmm. And I found that so powerful because she was saying that when you are from, particularly when you are from a marginalized group, because she is, she is a lesbian. Yeah. She 
also has a non-normative gender presentation like me. In fact, so much so that when I was watching it, our oldest came down from bed and was like, that looks like you. And then when I was watching a video with her later that week, my youngest was like, it's you. Like, yeah, that's how much our looks are alike. Yeah. And so it was really powerful to so hear you're no her longer t- Tina Fey. <laughs> I am, Sorry. Oh my God. No, I am not Tina Fey at all. I did have that hair though. And I did have those glasses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having someone say that, you know, we need to tell our stories properly. Yeah. And we need to honor ourselves and that, yeah, self-deprecation can relieve tension, but we're also doing ourselves harm when yeah. we do that. And so I found that really, yeah. really powerful. And it's really made me rethink how I talk about myself and how I tell my story and how I present. Yeah, it's uh, that makes me think a lot. I've been thinking about that whole thing about compliments recently. Like people just say, just say thank you. Because mm-hmm. I am definitely one of those people, whether humility or humiliation or self-deprecation or whatnot that's just like oh yeah but like and then I have to self-deprecate women are so bad at taking compliments because we've been conditioned to not do it and even and I know that's not ladylike it's not well and when you say if you were to say yeah I know then it would be like well you're being arrogant so it's kind of that like how do you balance? And saying thank you is really the only way. And I've had a lot of friends take me to task force. I've worked a lot on it, but even still, like I was out for dinner with one of my best work friends last night. And I forget what I said, but she's like, you're so smart. And my immediate response, my reflexive response, which I regret now that I said was, yeah, I'm all right. I'm not all right. I am smart. Yeah. I should have just said thank you because she's not wrong, but it's nice to, to have that notice. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, Yeah, I think anybody, everyone should watch that Hannah Gadsby special, but especially like if you're queer, if you're a woman, if you're from a marginalized group, you should be watching this because we do, our stories have value. Yeah. What's the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given? For parenting, I think it was definitely that one about like, get out of your kid's way. But in, in general, I think the best thing I've learned is that the thing that I think has been the most important to learn and that I've really learned the most in the last few years and kind of underpins all of what we've been talking about is that you have to live for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you can't be a narcissistic, selfish asshole. Yeah. But like you really need to take care of yourself. You need to live in ways that are going to make you happy. You can't, you can't keep up damaging or bad behaviors and practices just because it makes the people around you happy because that's no way to live. Yeah. It's funny the number of people that I interview and it comes back to authenticity. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The last year has probably been one of the best of my life Yeah. because of it. I, and I mean, I've had other great years. I by no means mean, oh, my life's been awful. But, but like. But that's great that it gets better and better, right? It does. Yeah. It does. It's amazing. And it actually makes me excited for 40 yeah 40s coming next year and you know my 30s have been my hardest years and my best years yeah so I kind of can't wait to see what's next so final question Tara is what does it mean to you to live your best life oh god I think that was this whole episode yeah (laughs) um I think yeah I mean my best life is it has my family in it every day. It has me working at a company where I love the people I'm with. It has me 
reading and it has me sharing my joy of fiction with the world. I love it. And also like some kind of bad food probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ice cream or chocolate or pizza. I don't know. I love food. So. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me.